Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 35. Then they brought him to Jesus, and uh, they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory." And glory in the highest. Now turn over to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Starting in verse 8. Or verse 7 as well. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. Now this is a colt that had never been ridden before. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches of the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the kingdom of our father David! And to keep all these things in mind, because we're going to look at this, where all this comes together. That comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple... So when he looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now that statement, as the hour was already late, was relevant to the very day, but it's also a type of what was really the bigger picture. The hour was late of his going to the cross. It was getting close now. We're in a later hour of Jesus coming a second time. The hour is getting late. That's why Satan's turning up the heat. Let's pray. And I ask again, I ask your prayer over me that God would just anoint this teaching, that God's strength would be upon me, and that you would be blessed and that you would be drawn closer. Lord, we ask for your peace and your presence and that we would hear from you. I ask for the anointing of your spirit and your people to hear from you. Not from me, but from you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, I typically teach the word, the intent of and the application is when we think about teaching, it's intent and it's application. And then I preach the word, this is every Sunday, which is exhortation. And sometimes the Lord has me present the word in story form. In other words, just explain it as it happened and let it speak for itself. Today is a mix of all three, uh, plus a little college classroom, if you will. Uh, but the story form is the centerpiece. And I want to simply present to you what God has written down, what actually took place, in the order it took place, along with some teaching explanation of why these things took place, how they're connected, and how it all points to Christ. And finally, how it compels us. If it doesn't compel you to follow him more, then it's kind of not really doing what God intends. And after I take us through this timeline, this story all written, all fulfilled by God in the person of Jesus. Then we'll close with this video that I think you'll really enjoy. It has worship as well as all the pictures and scenes of Israel where we walked in the footsteps of Jesus in the very land that he prepared by God 
centuries earlier to the place that he would establish the entrance of his son, the ministry of his son, the sacrifice of his son, the resurrection of his son, the ascension of his son. My prayer is that this amazing story becomes more alive to you, more real to you. Don't you want that? To be more real to you? More faith-confirming in your life. And not only that, but especially with Resurrection Sunday coming, God wants you to, he wants you to remember what Jesus did. Now, first, let me give you a primer. The three-year ministry of Jesus, if you're looking at the map here, up top is Galilee. You see a Galilee? It's shaped like a heart. Jesus spent most of his ministry, most of his ministry, not all of it, working, ministering, teaching, healing in that area of the Galilee. Those of you that went to Israel, you got to go around some of those areas, Capernaum, Bethsaida, different areas. So that's where the majority of Jesus' ministry was. Remember, he was born in Bethlehem, which was south of, south of Jerusalem. Then he had to escape to Egypt, and he came back, and as a child, he grew up in Galilee, and then... At the age of 30, for the next three years, he began to minister. And he unveiled that he had come from the Father. Not that everybody believed that, but that was his three-year three ministry. He did go to Jerusalem quite a bit from the time he was a child for the feast and the festivals and Passover, which, again, we're entering Passover season. But he did the majority in Galilee, but then uh, quite a bit often you'll see Scripture referring to things he did in Jerusalem when he would go there as well. He was first to come, the Bible says, to the lost sheep of Israel. The lost sheep of Israel. Because a lot of people are like, if you meet unsaved people or they, they've been going to church here and there, but they don't know, they're like, what has Israel got to do with all this? I don't get it. What Jewish people and Jesus and uh, Romans and all this stuff. I don't really, and uh, Egyptians. And how does it all work together? Hopefully... This will make it a little clearer. Now, his final week, again, his final week was all the Gospels, the final week of Jesus, takes place in Jerusalem or a little bit outside when he goes to Bethany in, in the evenings. He goes back and stays for the night. But most everything, it's sometimes referred to today as Passion Week. But really, it's Passover week. And it's referred to Passion because he had a passion a desire to fulfill the will of God. I mean, most people don't have a passion to go to a cross, right? That's probably not your life motivation. I cannot wait to be crucified. But Jesus looked forward to the cross because he knew that it would set men free. And so this final week was Passover week, but he was inspected as a lamb to be slaughtered that week by the priesthood, by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees. And it all took place, and you can see this is actually a rendering of Jerusalem at that time. You got the Mount of Olives over here. You got the Kidron Valley. You got the temple. Jesus would go over to Caiaphas' house in the middle of the night. All of it took place in Jerusalem. He'd be crucified outside the city, I believe just north of the city, because the sacrifice had to be uh, taken outside the camp. Jesus had to be taken outside the city. So this is that final week. What we just read in Luke and in Matthew, he was entering the city. Now, let's take a look and see where, where that was taking place. You're looking at the Mount of Olives uh, in the larger picture, and that is not 
um, all that white and uh, kind of tan color you see, that is not desert earth or anything like that. Those are all tombstones, hundreds of them. Because if you're wealthy enough in Jerusalem, you have to be wealthy to get a spot on the Mount of Olives. They believe that when Messiah comes, we know he already came, but they believe when he comes, and for us, coming again, coming to take his church home, but they believe, hey, he hasn't come yet, but he's going to come from the east. And that is true, because the temple faced east, and Jesus will come by his lightning flashes from the east to the west. That's correct. So they want to be the first to rise. Even in death, there's pride here, right? You know, I want to be the first to rise. I mean, does it really matter? And if you look at the earth from any direction, <laughs> it, it would all be the same, right? You know, God is not like, a, you know, even though he's coming from the east there, it's just inter very interesting. Then you have, uh, you know, Jesus was coming down. Now you can, see the, uh, you can see the Jericho Road where the buses are. It's still a road today. Of course, it's been paved now. But Jesus was coming down the Jericho Road on a donkey coming from the east towards Jerusalem, so east to west. And so he's going to come down right in to the temple. Now today, where the temple was, is a mosque. The Dome of the Rock, which was built uh, by Muslims and built uh, you know, when Israel, Jerusalem was occupied, Ottoman Empire and other, other periods of Muslim control, they built the Dome of the Rock there, and there's another mosque on the, on the property as well. But you're looking at Jerusalem, or you're looking at the Dome of the Rock, or the Temple Mount is what it really is. You're looking at the Temple Mount from east to west, and you're looking at the Temple Mount from east to west. In this rendering of the temple, so this is looking east to west as well. And then up top here is looking the opposite way. It's looking west to east. So in other words, the Mount of Olives is up here. Jesus would be coming down the Mount of Olives right into the temple. Remember it says there in the text, it says, and he went into the temple and looked around because he came straight down the mountain, straight into the temple. And if I show you, this is how the temple superimposed would look standing on the Mount of Olives. Jesus did the Olivet Discourse. You've all heard of that, right? What is the Olivet Discourse? He tells about the end times. He tells about the temple being destroyed. He didn't give the date, but he said it's soon going to be destroyed. He is looking directly at the temple, sitting on the Mount of Olives with the disciples, and they're looking, facing it, and he says that will be destroyed. Not a single stone will be left on top of the other. Today it's not there. Today it's the Dome of the Rock. And so all that took place there in Jerusalem. But Jesus, he was Jewish. He had no earthly father. He was born of the Spirit of God, born of a Jewish mother. It was Passover week, and Jesus was there for Passover, as were thousands of other Jewish pilgrims. He had been coming to Passover, as the law had prescribed, since he was a child. But this time, this time, even though Jesus had come all those times before, this time he was not only coming to partake of the Passover, which he would, which we call the Last Supper, but it was really the Passover. He partook of the Passover, but he had come not just to partake of the Passover, but to be the Passover lamb. It was the plan of God that there in Jerusalem, on a blood-stained tree, 
Jesus would reverse the curse that began at another tree 4,000 years earlier. The Passover week was God's solution to that which was lost after the... The Passover week is the solution to that which was lost after the creation week. You see how these things are already... Hopefully your mind is seeing, God, he's got a week and he's got another week. He's got a tree and another tree. One will fix the other. You see, 4,000 years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem, earth was a paradise. Wouldn't it have been great? No death. No illness. Everything looked like Bahamas to me or Fiji or, you know, just uh, places I want to be. Not right now. I'd rather be with you. But anyway, places you like to be. Eating mangoes. No illness. No cancer. No porta johnnies Wouldn't that be great? A great invention that we really, you know, all loathe when that's the only option, right? There's a row of them and you're at the D.C. mall or something like that. No traffic. No mosquitoes. No flies at the picnic, right? Everything was good. Everything was perfect. But Adam and Eve, they instead believed Satan instead of God. Did you know many Americans today are believing Satan instead of God? Your dollar bill says in God we trust. It's not true for most people. It's in themselves they trust, or it's in their money, or it's in their careers, and their education. But, but Adam and Eve believed, in, they believed Satan, who came as a serpent. If you follow me on Facebook, you see I came across a bunch of serpents this week. Some people say, why are you afraid? Because I, I fight against Satan nonstop, so real serpents don't bother me that much anymore. The serpent is the one you've got to worry about. But in their eyes, what Satan said made more sense than what God said. And sin entered the world, and then death followed. And not immediately, because they couldn't immediately, they didn't drop dead. So Satan was like, you probably even tell them, see, I told you, right, you didn't drop dead. But the clock started ticking, didn't it? They didn't know that now sand was moving through the hourglass. But God promised he would send a son. He said to Eve, of your seed, I'm going to send a son who will crush the head of the serpent, which is exactly what happens in Jerusalem around 33 A.D., 2,000 years ago. And that's Jesus. He said, he's promising, I'm going to send a son from you, not from Adam, but from Eve, because it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. Of course, no one understood that statement at the time. We, we understand it now in hindsight. And there was an immediate foreshadow to Jesus. The first death was not Adam and Eve, but it was the life of either one or more animals that God clothed them with skin. Blood had to be shed. Right out of the gate, we see a, a foreshadow here. A blood was shed in response to their sin. And over the next several hundred years, the world became increasingly wicked. I mean, you think it's bad today. It became so bad there was only one righteous dude and a few few of his kids on all the earth. Increasingly wicked. And for a big portion of that time, I don't know if you knew that, Adam was still alive. So the world had the testimony of the very guy created by God. Adam said, hello, I'm still here. I, I, me and Eve are here to tell you this. You guys are going down the wrong path. We started it, but please don't. But no one would listen. And then God flooded the, he judged the whole world. 
flooded the whole world. God raised up a man named Noah. And the Bible says Noah found grace. The first mention of grace in the whole Bible is right there. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's the first mention of the word grace. And when we sing Amazing Grace, it was, it was us looking back at the cross, but that was already looking forward to the grace to come. God preserved Noah for one reason. Well, he loved Noah, but he preserved him for one reason, that the seed of Eve that was promised would go forward. If Noah's dead, there's no path for the Messiah. So this family is the one that God preserves so that that promised son would still come forth. Now Noah and the ark, it lands on Mount Ararat, which is in more than likely modern-day Turkey, somewhere along Iran-Turkey border. And after the, uh, Noah and the ark comes to rest there, eventually the descendants of his three sons, they fan out. If you're European descent, you come from Japheth. His Japheth goes up, his descendants go up into Russia, over into Europe. Ham, part Middle East, almost all of Africa. Shem, also the Middle East, the Near East, and the Far East. The word, you know, when we look at the word Shem, that's where we get the, uh, the term Semitic. Jewish people descend from Shem, not, not only because God ends up, the Jewish people end up being a grafting of Japheth and Ham. So if people tell you that all Jewish people come from Shem, that's not the case. Shem is the is the father of the Semitic people. But many Jewish people today are descendants of Ham and Japheth and Shem, and yet they're still called Semitic. Or if you are anti-Semite, it's, it's, it's thought of anti-Jewish, but really Semitic is much more than just Jewish people. It would be people of the Near East, people of the Far East, China, Japan. That, all that would be Semitic in the truest sense of the term, but people don't really think of it in those terms today. Uh, but... So they fan out in all these different directions. And you can see that uh, I have Israel uh, noted there, the orange box around it. As yet, no one knows what Israel is. At this time, Noah is not saying, you know what, my three sons, you should all move to Israel. There was no Israel. They don't go to Israel. They go in all different directions, although uh, some of Ham's descendants primarily do go to Canaan. But... They don't know anything about the Jewish nation. Enter a man by the name of Abraham. Now, when Abraham is born, Shem's still alive. Shem's still alive. We don't know if Ham and Japheth are alive, but Shem is still, still alive. Or uh, for sure, Shem is alive at this point in time. But, but Abraham is a direct descendant of Shem. Again, why Israel will be a Semitic people. And he's from a city called Ur, which today would be Iraq, but then was the Chaldeans and later would become Babylon. So the origins of the Jewish nation really is Babylon in a sense, because that's where Abraham is from. And that in there, he, originally his name is Abram, and God changes his name to Abraham. And God calls him, calls him by faith. Abraham believes God to go to a land he's not seen and a son he doesn't think is really possible to have because him and his wife are already old, right? So it's like, all right, where's this land? You'll, I'll show you when you get there. Where's this son? I promise you'll get one. 
At some point, he kind of wavers on that. And then, but uh, Canaan is where God takes him. It's not called Israel yet. It's just Canaan at that time. He goes 700 miles to the west of Ur. Now, Abraham and Sarah, they have a miracle birth. And Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah's 90. They have a son named Isaac. And so they have a miracle birth and Isaac. And then Isaac has a son, and his son is named Jacob, which means deceiver. Oh, by the way, uh, this is pretty cool in case you didn't know that. Did you see the Temple Mount? Remember the picture of the Temple Mount? Looking at it from Mount Olives, looking at the Temple Mount? That same Temple Mount is where Abraham took Isaac, and it was called Mount Moriah. Later it becomes called the Temple Mount or Mount Zion. But originally, when Abraham goes there, he doesn't know the temple's going to be there. He thinks, this is a, all right, this is the spot. And matter of fact, many rabbis believe that the very place that Abraham laid Isaac on the altar is where the Holy, Holy, Holy of Holies later sat. Same place. God's repeating. So again, I want you to see it's all connected. God was showing that all of this place is going to be where I'm going to do the greatest work the history of the world has ever seen. But God changes Jacob's name to what? Israel. And Israel, or Jacob, has 12 sons. And then they get the really bad notion to sell one of their brothers. So they sell him to Egypt, slave traders that are headed to Egypt. But God uses the whole thing to bring the whole family to Egypt. But he had already told Abraham, You're going to spend, your descendants will spend 400 years there. And guess what? They spend 400 years in Egypt in bondage. Then God raises up a man by the name of Moses. God raises up Moses. And through Moses, the Lord brings about a series of miraculous plagues on the land of Egypt, 10 of them. At the end of that, there is this amazing passing through the Red Sea. But before the passing through the Red Sea, God ordains something that comes just before they leave and pass through the Red Sea, and that is the Passover. With Exodus, the, the word Exodus means to get out, right? They, 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 they were leaving. Exit. They were exiting Egypt. But as they exited, God ordained something called the Passover. Before they would pass through the Red Sea, they had to be passed over by the angel of death. Because this was the final plague. Would you believe God or would you believe Pharaoh? And if you did not apply blood to the doorpost at the top and the two sides, and as it dripped to the doorframe, you get what? A cross. So the Passover, blood had to be applied, and we, we know now that's foreshadowing that a Passover blood has to be applied to us, or God cannot pass over our sins. But the Passover was ordained at this time, and it required a spotless, unblemished lamb. Does that sound familiar to you? Whose blood... Again, had to be applied, and then the angel would pass over, and God tells Moses to observe it every single year. Every single year, starting at the first of the month. 
And Jesus, as he enters Jerusalem, well, he is the Passover lamb, isn't he? Well, after they pass through the Red Sea, which is a miracle, and it's a picture of us being baptized by water. We'll see this as we are even in our Hebrew study. Uh, after they pass through the Red Sea, after escape, soon after escaping Egypt, uh, God brings the children of Israel to a mountain that's not in Israel, but Mount Sinai. I believe it's in Saudi Arabia, that area, but uh, if you believe it's on the Sinai Peninsula, regardless. Uh, but he gives them at Mount Sinai the law. And what is the law? Well, that's the Ten Commandments. And they're given, Moses is given the Ten Commandments. Uh, he's given addition to that additional laws, ceremonial laws, sacrifices given to Moses and the people, and they have to keep all of this. Now, I'm in the book of Leviticus in my personal study. I read chapter 14 this morning, and my mind was numb. When I was, and it's like, how in the world did they keep, all, how did they keep a tenth of it? It is hard. It is complex. I'm sure they were thinking the same thing. And the law continued all the way till Jesus who would be the only one, everyone else would fail to keep it. They would really royally mess up. Along comes Jesus, and he keeps it to perfection. So after Moses, Moses has an assistant named Joshua. Joshua is the assistant. He is the vice president, if you will, but he eventually takes over for Moses. And it's Joshua, not Moses. Moses doesn't go into the promised land because at one time he gets so fed up with the people that he slaps the rock a second time. The rock's a picture of Christ. Um, I would never do that as a pastor. But anyway, but, uh, but Moses did, and uh, I'm kidding. I, I certainly would. I would have messed up. I would have messed up long before he did. Uh, but Joshua ends up taking the reins from Moses, and Joshua, whose name is very much the same as Jesus in the New Testament, Yahshua, Yeshua. He's a picture of Jesus taking us into the spirit-filled life. The promised land is not a picture of heaven. The promised land is a picture of the spirit-filled life. And Joshua takes the people into the promised land. We know it's not heaven because they have to fight enemies nonstop. That's your life today. You have the promise of the Holy Spirit, but you still have Satan attacking you right and left, as do I. So the promised land is a picture of you're, you have the power of God. You now have the fruit of... You remember the land was filled with milk and honey and fruit and grapes the size of an apple and all that good stuff. The fruit is there. The fruit of the Spirit is there. The promise of life is there. But the enemy's there to nag you constantly as well. And the children of Israel, then they're led into that promised land through Joshua. After the death of Joshua, after the death of Joshua, people unfortunately, turn rather quickly to sin and idolatry. There's no king in Israel, but God sends a series of judges to bring the people back to the Lord. The last judge is a man by the name of Samuel. You probably know that name. And he's the last judge before the first king, and the first king is a man by the name of Saul. Now, Saul's not from the tribe of Judah, and that's important because in the, the prophecy that Abraham blessed his sons, he said the law, the scepter would not depart from the house of Judah. And we know that Jesus had to come from Judah. Well, Saul, the first king, is not from Judah. So the kingdom, though, 
Saul also rebels against God, just like the people. And the kingdom is taken from Saul, and it's given to who? Young David. And he is from the tribe of Judah, from which the Messiah must come. And you read in the text, it said uh, David is mentioned in that praise that the people are praising from the Psalms. They're praising uh, the Messiah that David is mentioned there because the king of the royal throne comes through David. And David is promised by God. God gives David a promise that his seed, through his seed, will come a throne that will never end. And in hindsight, we know exactly who God was speaking of. It was clearly pointing to Christ. Now, David's son is Solomon. And Solomon, he builds the first temple. Before that, they only had a tabernacle, which was a temporary thing. But he builds the tabernacle on the same spot where Abraham took Isaac. Builds the temple on the same spot. And it's the same spot that Jesus enters. As he comes down the Mount of Olives, he's entering right where Solomon had built the temple. Now, this, at this time, that temple had been rebuilt. It was the second temple built by Zerubbabel. But it was still in the same place that Solomon had put the first temple. Now, after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits into two. Northern kingdom, ten tribes, and the southern kingdom. Now, interestingly enough, the tribes are the descendants of who? The 12 brothers. The brothers are at odds again. Just as they were before Egypt, the brothers are now at odds again. Cain was at odds with Abel. There's always been family strife. And God, or Satan, will use strife to actually destroy a family or a nation. So now the brothers are at odds again, just as they were prior to Egypt. God sends prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah to both kingdoms to warn them against their sin, against their idolatry, against forsaking God, all of which God told Moses, God told Moses, they're going to walk away from me. They're going to love their money and their stuff, and I'm going to send a cruel nation from a faraway place to enslave them. Both eventually adopt the vile practices of the nations around them, and God brings devastating judgment. First, it's the northern kingdom. You would not have wanted to be captured by Assyria. If you wanted to be skinned alive, flailed, uh, put on, impaled on a stake, I mean, just you name it, I could go on and on about the way that they uh, just were ruthless. But the Assyrian Empire, as the empires Babylon would do the same, they dispersed the people to other lands so they would lose their culture. Strangely enough, it never worked with Jewish people. All around the world, they've retained the synagogues and the culture. This is a God thing, right? This is all God, because in most other cases, whenever they'd done this with nations, they wouldn't retain their culture. Now, they would adopt some things, but again, there would just be some root left there, which is kind of amazing, more than kind of amazing. Then the southern kingdom follows sometime later, 586 B.C. The southern kingdom in Jerusalem is completely leveled. The temple is leveled, so the temple that Solomon built is destroyed. And they're taken into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. As Jeremiah the prophet had written, 70 years after the captivity, they would be allowed to return. That's exactly what happened. And God raises up a handful of men that organize a rebuilding of the temple, and they see some periods of spiritual revival. And we, just, uh, you know, we did a whole study on Nehemiah, right? 
God used Nehemiah in a great way. Nehemiah didn't rebuild the temple. He rebuilt the walls. But Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. And Ezra reinstituted the reading of the law. And Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. And so God used these men for a rebuilding effort. Now, this is important because what they did is in place by the time Jesus, everything they resettled, all, the, all that Herod would do would add to that temple. But everything they did was in place by the time Jesus comes uh, when, he, when, uh, when he comes to the earth. Now, from the time of Babylon to the birth of Christ, the vast majority of the time they were under Greek. You know, it start, the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, then after him comes the Seleucid. Uh, and so that's called Hellenist, the Hellenist period. The vast majority of the time, Jerusalem was under Hellenist control. There was a little bit of time, you've heard of Hanukkah, that takes place in the Maccabean period where there's a revolt, and there's a little bit of Jewish reasserting control of their own city, but it was pretty short-lived, that 50-year period. You know, there's a range of time where they were kind of vassal and total control was a short period of time. And then finally came the dreaded Roman Empire that you know, took over most of the known world at that time. But this is your Babylon, Persia, Greece, a little bit of Maccabean, and then finally into the Roman period. Now, Jesus arrives as Caesar Augustus is giving a census, so we know it's right smack in the Roman Empire when Jesus comes. Uh, you'll see in our, the video, Israel video will show in a bit, you'll see some Greco-Roman things. All that would be coming from the Hellenist and the Roman period. It's not Jewish, uh, you know, buildings and structures look different. But Rome and Greece built a lot of these things, and they're still there today. Places like Caesarea and Scythopolis and places like that around Israel. Now, the last prophet to be given scripture is a man by the name of Malachi. And after Malachi, um, or in, and actually in Malachi, uh, the final chapter, I don't know if you've read Malachi in a while, but the final chapter of Malachi points to the coming Messiah his future judgment, and his rule. But after Malachi puts his pen down, there's 400 years of silence. Not that God doesn't speak to anybody in that time, but no scripture is written during that 400 years. There's no prophetic scripture given. Things like the Maccabeans take place in that time, but they don't have scripture. They, they do write documents, but they're not. nobody considers them, uh, at least from a theological standpoint, as actual scripture. So you have 400 years of silence. So from Genesis to Malachi, starting with the fall, we have, and I've done all this in a matter of minutes, from Genesis to Malachi, just after, after creation, we see the puzzle pieces. God brings them all together into a clear picture. A son is promised to Adam and Eve. Blood has to be shed from the get-go with the covering and the animal skins. Mankind is preserved through Noah. But the Messiah must come as a man. But he also has to come as God. And all the types and all the foreshadows and all the prophecies were pointing to the hope of Jesus. Started in Bethlehem all the way to the cross. So 33 years, all of it from Bethlehem to the cross. And Jesus, just like Jesus was on a singular mission, the creation of the cross is a singular story. 
but a lot of different pieces. Jesus is on a singular mission. Creation of the cross is a singular story. Adam was the created son of God, wasn't he? Adam didn't have an earthly father. Only one other person in history, like Adam, doesn't have an earthly father, and that's the, what the Scripture calls him the second Adam, Jesus. Different, because Adam was the son of God, but he wasn't perfect, and he wasn't sinless, and he wasn't eternal, and he was not all God. He was only a created son, whereas Jesus was all God and all man. Moses, well, he was the lawgiver, but Jesus was the law keeper, the only one perfect to keep the law. The little tiny nation of Israel, which people are like, how does it play in? Well, you see in a little bit of how it plays in. The tiny nation of Israel would continue to fall and fall again and repent and come back and fall again and repent and come back. But God's grace would bring forth out of that little tiny flailing nation the humble Messiah that would save all the nations, the big ones, the empires, as long as they turned to him. Aaron and the priesthood, Aaron and the priesthood would faithfully represent God, but Jesus would be the high priest that would provide access to the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, but you and I now can go into the Holy of Holies because of the work of Jesus. We're going to look at this more next week. King David, well, he saw Israel flourish under his kingdom and then on into Solomon, but there was a king greater than David who doesn't die, but he lives forever. Well, he does die, but three days later, he lives forever, and he'll sit on the throne forever. Solomon, he built the first temple, but Jesus is. He said he is the temple that if you tear down, I'll raise it back up again. Solomon built the temple. Jesus says, I am the temple. He entered the temple, entered the temple on Palm Sunday. The temple entered the temple and said, this temple is going to be obliterated, but this other temple is going to be magnified and glorified. Many lambs were slain, but Jesus is the once and for all Passover lamb, and after that, no lambs need to be slain to cover sin. And he willingly laid down his life for you and me. And everything points now for him to do what? To return again to the Mount of Olives. The Bible says he will stand on the Mount of Olives, and it will split in two. Are you ready for that? Next week, we'll look at the resurrection, but we'll look at the cross. Next week, I'll be looking at two thieves on either side of Jesus. Each had a choice to make, and then those that made the right choice would rejoice, and we'll take a look at all that next week. But, but we are now ready for Jesus to come again, and he's going to stand again on the Mount of Olives, just like he did coming down, just like he did the Olivet Discourse, he, and just like he did in the Ascension. All three took place on the Mount of Olives, his Coming in Jerusalem, his Olivet Discourse, and his um, ascension back up into heaven all took place on the Mount of Olives. So I want you to see this video. I think you'll be blessed. The worship music is great in it. If you feel like worshiping, sing along if you want. Uh, but bow your heads for just a moment before we, before we hit play. I'm going to have them cue it up. And I hope it blesses you. This was our team that went to Israel. Uh, and we'll close it out. It's about uh, 17, 18 minutes or so, I think. And this will close out our service. This will be our worship. Then I'll come up and close some prayer.